Hello, welcome back to our study of the book of Galatians. And we're so glad you could join us. This is our third installment, uh, or at least the third chapter of Galatians. What we've seen so far is a letter that Paul is writing to a group of Christians that's struggling with an issue. And there's some division that's being introduced into this group because of this issue. And it's a very familiar issue in terms of the broader scope of it because it's one that Christians are dealing with in other places, and that's evidenced by Paul's other writing. Um, the Jewish Gentile relationship in the early church was very complicated. Um, the Gentiles who were accepting Christ uh, were doing so after the gospel had been revealed to the Jewish people. And so the initial, uh, the initial group of Christians, most of them, a vast majority, for quite a while, were Jewish. And um, there were different events, socio-political events, that forced Jewish people out of certain places like Rome, uh, and then they were allowed back in, the Edict of Claudius, one in particular, that cast Jews out of Rome, and then they returned, and when they got back, there were Gentiles there that had accepted Christ. And so we see in the book of Romans that conflict. We see that conflict uh, here in Galatians as well. So a majority of Jewish people, but uh, uh, Gentiles beginning to accept the gospel, and as they're doing that, um, some of the Jews are lording over them the, their history and requiring that they become Jewish in order to be Christian. So they're introducing a prerequisite to the faith, that one must abide by the standards and the practices and the ritual and the regulation of the old law before they can accept Jesus Christ. Now we think that is patently ridiculous. You know, that to us that seems ridiculous. But I think we do the same thing sometimes, you know, that we, we want people to become a member of our church, right? And we want them to place membership. These are the phrases I heard growing up in, in my faith tradition. Um, there becomes an institutionalizing of church, which we have to guard against and be careful of. Now, I'm, I'm all for organization. I'm all for making the most of your resources, and sometimes that requires some organization. But if you look at the history of mankind and its relationship with the church, with the ecclesia, the called people, it very much becomes an institution, and very soon we are defending an institution rather than the church, the called out people who we are. Um, Jews were also defending their institution, missing the point of what Jesus had done. Paul has already gone into some detail explaining why this is silly. Um, he's told some accounts of how he ran into these people as well and why he feels like they are wrong for, their, for what they're trying to, to promote. Now, bear in mind, um, Peter was the first uh, to minister to a Gentile. You know, the first recorded conversion of a Gentile is Cornelius in, in the book of Acts. Paul is a Pharisee. He's a teacher. He's a legal scholar. And yet... Contrary to what we might think, I mean, it really is, uh, it, it is counterintuitive. Peter, who ought to have a heart for the Gentiles because of his experience, uh, holds a stricter view than Paul, who ought to have a stricter view because of his background. And it seems that Peter's view, which we, we see about in chapter 2, is out of fear. And Paul is really trying to attack that fear. Being guided by what other people think is a dangerous thing. And Paul is trying to attack that uh, and demonstrate that what they're doing is binding something on 
people who have professed a faith that is not required to be bound on them. And to understand that, to make that point, Paul's going to have to explain and convince the audience about the justification by faith. In order to, to and, and this is just a culture thing, folks. This is, this is ingrained in the Jewish people, their law. Jesus comes, he's the Messiah. Those who accept him, who call on his name, who believe in him, they're baptized. Everything about all of that is very Jewish. Now, we, we look at it sometimes and go, oh, this huge um, paradigm shift. Well, we see that because we see it with Gentile eyes. For the Jew, it was, it was totally uh, within the realm of their prophecy that Jesus would be the Messiah. His sacrifice, his crucifixion, all prophesied. The acceptance of him, uh, the practice of baptism, which is, which is a purely Jewish tradition that was carried over into the Christian age, Everything about that says this is just the fulfillment of Judaism. And so continuing to practice the law would have seemed quite natural. What they were missing, what they were missing was what was the heart of the gospel, that you no longer are reliant on yourself for your salvation, but God has brought salvation down through Christ so that you can be saved. I can go on and on about that. The point is with when it comes to the letter to the Galatians, Paul has to prove this point, that justification no never has and cannot come through the law. Justification only comes through faith, and that looks a certain way. Now, let's define a few terms here, because we've already seen some, some of this justification and faith and stuff. First of all, justification, to be justified. There is uh, the, the cliche term is to be justified means that you are made just as if I'd never sinned, right? I'm just as if I'd never sinned. That's justified. That's the cliche way it's taught. Um, think of it like a legal remedy, okay? That's how I think of it. Um, there, there's a case, we learned about it when I was in school. There's a case from some years ago. Uh, a man is walking down the aisle at Walmart. He's going through the sporting goods section. On one of the top shelves was a box of shotgun shells. The, it had been damaged in shipping, and one of the shells had broken open. If you know anything about shotgun shells, they, they have shot in them, little metal BBs uh, of various sizes, depending on the gauge. So this box of shells had come open. One of the shells had been broken. The seal on it had been broken in shipping, and it tipped over, and shot had spilled onto the floor. This man walks down the aisle, doesn't see it, slips on it, falls, injures himself. He's no longer able to work at his job, um, and, and so he sues Walmart because he's injured, unable to work. Now, here's how our justice system looks at that situation. They look at this man and the fact that he's able to work and earn a living and provide for himself, right? And they say, well, if he's no longer able to do that, then that is a certain cost to him. Let's say he makes sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year. He might work for another 25 years. How much money has he lost out on uh, as a result of not being able to work that job? Now, then the question becomes, who is responsible? Now, in this particular case, the, the, the court found that Walmart was indeed responsible. There's, some, there's a common law concept called a duty of care. Uh, by the way, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not dispensing legal advice. I'm just sharing what, what I've learned. Uh, there's a common law concept called duty of care. The court found that Walmart 
has a certain standard of care they must meet, which is to keep their aisleways clear and passable. And so they were judged to be at fault for not keeping this area safe. Therefore, the injury this man sustained was their fault. And now the question becomes, how do they make it right? So a judge or a jury uh, will assign a, a, an amount, a dollar amount in a civil case like this, uh, and say, this guy lost, you know, his livelihood and his direction in life has changed as a result of your action. Therefore, Walmart, you must pay him X amount of dollars for the real losses he has suffered, plus punitive damages, the pain and suffering stuff. And that will make it right. That's called remedy. That's how we handle our legal system. Now, is the man going to all of a sudden be healed and free of injury? No. But will he have recouped some uh, comparable uh, something to what he lost? That's the idea. The idea is, no, he is physically still injured and unable to work, but there has been some sort of social remedy and legal remedy. He has been paid back for what he's owed. Uh, another example is in, in the criminal court system. We put people in jail. Now, there's a whole lot of room for debate about our incarceration system and policies and process, but one of the reasons we do that, in addition to deterrence and just taking risks and threats off the street, is we judge that someone owes a debt to society. You did something that hurt people or a person you now have to pay a penalty, and that is to be removed from society, to have your liberty taken away. That's how our system was built and structured. In some ways, our relationship with God is much like that. And remedy, in the legal sense, is the same as justification in the spiritual sense. That when I am justified before God, it means that my debt is paid. It means that the, there has been a recompense that has been provided for the debt that I've incurred, for the wrong that I've done. Uh, and just like the man who was injured in Walmart, um, yes, I, I have sinned. I am sinful. But God does not see it because I'm justified in his sight, truly justified. That sin no longer exists because of the remedy that was paid, and that remedy is Christ. So the concept of being justified, we need to understand, to be justified means that something has stepped in to provide a remedy for the sin, which is a transgression and a debt against God. This justification, though, comes by faith. Now, what is faith? Is that just a mere belief? Uh, the term used in theological realm is mental assent, that we accept something as true intellectually, and that belief is what we call faith. No. That's not what biblical faith is, because we have example after example, such as Hebrews chapter 11, that um, uh, so-and-so did this, uh, and, they, and, and, and they, by faith they did this thing, and it was credited to them as righteousness. By faith, Abraham, when he was told to go to a place he did not yet know, he went. By faith, Noah built the ark, right? By faith, all of these people did these things, um, and they were credited as righteous, not for leaving, not for building the ark, but because they had faith, and that faith produced action. Our faith, and James will talk about this in his epistle, our, that, that faith will produce action. 
Um, when we read Paul and we read James, people think they contradict. They do not contradict. I, I reject the idea that they contradict because if you read what James is saying and you read what Paul is saying, they fit very well together. They are speaking from two sides of the same point. One saying, remember, Paul is arguing against Jews who were trying to bind a law on people, and he is having to make the point, you will not be saved by your law. Your works will not save you. James, on the other hand, was dealing with people who were full of empty words, who were saying they had faith, but they weren't acting like it. And he is saying, your faith, if it's true, will produce fruit. They're both the same. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys. When we are transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ into saved people, when by faith we accept him, it, it should change the way you live. If it doesn't change the way you live, you need to check your faith. And that's what Paul says, and that's what James says. They come at it from different perspectives because of the purpose of their writing. Do not be fooled into thinking that they contradict one another. There's plenty of other contradictions in the Bible to deal with. Uh, let's not make them up. All right, now on to chapter 3 of Galatians. Now that we've got some of that done. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there Paul goes um, and, and he's saying, now think back. Think back to what it was when you accepted Christ, when you were made whole, when you were given the Spirit, when you received the Spirit. That didn't happen because of work of the law. It happened because of faith. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Okay, we have an interesting concept here. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now he points out that Abraham was made righteous by his faith, not by his works. Okay, and Abraham was pre-law anyway, not, not like a college major. Pre, he was before the law was given, just to clarify. Um, so he points out that Abraham was made righteous by faith. Jewish people love to be the children of Abraham, all right? That is their thing. They are Abraham. They belong to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're very proud of that heritage and that genealogy, and rightly so. But Paul introduces an idea here. It is not your heritage, your culture, or your ethnicity that makes you a child of Abraham, all right? I've talked a lot about Israel in the Old Testament kind of being this parallel for what was coming, which is the church, the kingdom of God. Well, look what he says here. He points out Abraham being counted as righteous because of his faith. And then he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Wow, those who are made righteous by faith, they are the true Jews. They are the true children of God. They're the true sons of Abraham. And in this way, we as Christians consider ourselves spiritual descendants of Abraham and of Moses, and of Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, we are a part of that same kingdom, not because I'm Jewish, but because I have faith. So I'm in the same family. Verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In, in you shall all nations be blessed. Okay, 
Paul is an expert at going back to the old law or to the Old Testament and saying, didn't you see Jesus there, folks? Didn't you see him? He's there. He says, look, uh, the scripture knew. He personifies the scripture, which is really fascinating um, because it's the words of God. that They believe that scripture is God speaking to them. So he personifies it, essentially saying that because in God's wisdom he knew what he was going to do, he would justify the Gentiles by faith, he, in Scripture, and he's saying, look at this, guys, this, there's something hidden here you haven't seen. Because the Scripture knew that what was coming with the Gentiles, it's in there. The gospel, Jesus, the good news, the liberation is in there. Spoken to Abraham long, long ago when he says, in you shall all nations be blessed. See, they'd missed that. They never noticed it. They had forgotten it. And, and Paul's reminding them that God promised that everyone was going to be blessed through Abraham, right? So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, Paul builds this argument first by talking about who's included as children of Abraham. All of us, all of us by faith are now, see, he's broadened the definition. The Jews thought they were special because they came from Abraham, and God was blessing Abraham, and Paul, and Paul says, wait a minute, go back and look at that again. It says all nations. And how was Abraham made righteous? By his faith. By his faith expressing itself in obedience. And the same is true of the Gentiles. And therefore they are partakers in the sonship of Abraham. That's an important word, which sounds like I made it up. Maybe I did. But I use that word because I think it's the best descriptor of chapter 3 in Galatians. It is a chapter about sonship. It's about heritage. It's about where you come from and who you belong to. And he's already laid the groundwork in these first several verses of chapter 3. We're children of Abraham and the blessing that was given to Abraham because of faith. Verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide all the things in the book of law and do them. They don't think about that part, do they, when they're enforcing this law? Because it's always about someone else, not about them. And Paul rightly points out, hey, you're putting a heavy, heavy burden on yourself when you seek to be justified by the law because the law says anyone who doesn't keep it perfectly is cursed. Now, it is evident, verse 11, that no one is justified before God by the law. For why? Well, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 here. It wasn't chapter 2, verse 4 to them. They didn't have chapters and verses, but he quotes the prophet Habakkuk. Now, let's do a little background here on Habakkuk, by the way. Um, Habakkuk is interesting. God comes to Habakkuk, and he says, um, you know, Israel's not doing so great. Israel's not doing uh, what I've asked them to do. And he says to Habakkuk, you know, the evil, debaucherous enemy pagan enemy of Israel, um, and I believe it's the Chaldeans in Habakkuk, he says, I, I'm going to raise them up to come and conquer Israel to teach them a lesson. Now think about this. Think about if God came to you and said, you know, uh, the United States of America is, is way off track. I'm going to raise up North Korea to come and wipe them out, teach them a lesson. Um, or, you know, whoever. And we might say, wait a minute. No, they're, 
they're evil, they're heathen, they're atheists, they don't, they don't accept God, they're not holy. God's going to use our evil enemy, the Chaldeans, for Habakkuk to teach us a lesson. And Habakkuk decides, I'm just going to sit for a minute because I don't know how I feel about this. And he takes a minute to think and he has some questions for God. And God answers some of those questions. And then Habakkuk says, in one of the more beautiful verses in all of Scripture, he says that if the if the food disappears from the field, if all the livestock dies, if war comes, if the city's destroyed, I will still follow you, my Lord and my God. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, there's some debate about exactly what that means and how those words are ordered because language is hard, but the point is the same, and it's true either way you take it. Those who are made righteous either will be guided by faith in how they live, or it means that those who have faith are made righteous. Either way, God is at work to cleanse the heart and repair the soul of those who are once sinful, but that profess him by faith. And Paul here says, if you're under the law and trying to live by the law, you're cursed because the law says you've got to keep it perfectly and nobody does it. Habakkuk, the prophet himself, said the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And that, that's some difficult stuff there. Yeah, Jesus became a curse for us, so we are not cursed. It means that Jesus stood in our place. He stood in our place. He took what we deserved. He paid the price paid the debt, provided the remedy, made it right with God, justified us. Verse 15, again, we're talking about sonship. We're talking about our, our lineage. We're talking about you being children here. Keep in mind. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham, to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 30 years afterward, excuse me, 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, this is some deep stuff, so let's take it a step at a time. Paul says, let me, let me spell this out for you. When you make a promise, you make a covenant, think of it in Western democratic terms, when you write a contract, when you have a contract, um, you don't change that. After, you, after you've decided on it, you don't just take it upon yourself to change that. It's final, okay? We've got a promise here. We've got a contract. We've got an obligation, right? Nothing about that changes. It's enforceable. Now, he says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul makes clear here, the promise is made to Abraham is made that he will be blessed, and this promise is to him and to his offspring. The, 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 what's being talked about, the prophecy there, the promise that's being made with that prophetic language, is this. 
the nations will be blessed because Abraham in his prolific family tree, through that family tree will come the Messiah that will liberate the world and save mankind from sin. We understand that when we read it. I'm not sure how much the Jews understood it when they read it, but they took a lot of pride in their heritage and the fact that they were children of Abraham. And Paul is pointing out, he's saying, go back and look at that again. Go back and revisit what that says, because it might say something different than you think. He's talking about Christ coming through Abraham. And the law was four and a half centuries later, Paul says. So God made a promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through his offspring, which is Christ. That's the promise. That's the covenant. That is the contract. That's the agreement. And Paul says, there, it doesn't even pass the smell test. It makes no sense spiritually, theologically, uh, 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 practically. It makes no rational sense that this promise or contract would get changed 430 years later with some law. Understand what the law is and why it is. It was to guide, provide order, provide protection for God's people so that Abraham's promise could be fulfilled and Christ could come and they could live to see it. God's keeping them alive till Jesus gets here. That's what the law is for. It's to prepare their hearts and minds for understanding the concept of debt and sin and sacrifice. And when Jesus comes, he fulfills all those things. And Paul says, that promise wasn't made to Abraham about the law. It was made about his offspring. It was made about Jesus. It's through Jesus. And if that's different, if you're going to get it through the law, then, the, then Scripture is lying, and God changed the contract. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We're getting to some good stuff here, okay? Let's back up and take care of this paragraph real quick. Um, Paul does this a lot where he, he, kind of, he kind of hates on the law a little bit. And then he comes back and says, but, but the law's good. Don't get me wrong. Like it, It's not evil. It just had a purpose. The purpose was to protect God's people, to give them order, to give them protection and safety, and to help them understand. To understand sin, to understand transgression, to understand justification, to understand sanctification, to understand grace. They had to have a law. But when the time and the purpose of that law was over, you got to let it go because it's not the real thing. It's not the real thing. And he said if it could be, if it were, then that's how you'd be righteous. But he says the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. You see, the law was given because of transgression. That's, that's what he says. It's because of sin. Because there needed to be some way to order and to understand sin and God and purity and evil and the difference between the two natures. 
Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law kept us alive, kept us in order, helped us to, underst helped us to understand sin, and was there until Jesus came. Now, verse 25, but now the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. Oh, and I, these are my two favorite verses in Galatians and two of my favorite in the New Testament. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Other translations flip that around. You're all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Um, this is Paul now explaining how you are brought into union with God and union with Christ. So pay attention. These are very important. For you're all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Okay. A couple things. We're all the sons of God. Remember, this is about sonship. Sons of Abraham, children of God. You're all children of God. How? By faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 27 begins with the Greek word gar, uh, gamma, alpha, rho, which uh, is translated as for, which means to introduce the reason. Okay, so he makes a statement. You're all the sons of God. How? By faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Why are we the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus? Because, Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. By the way, by the way, their baptism is seen as synonymous with the profession of faith. Now we in our church teach that baptism is an essential part of accepting Jesus Christ. That the profession now that is not, we're not teaching works by the way. We are teaching that that is the faith response to the grace of God. We find that example in scripture. When one professes belief, they are then clothed with Christ in baptism. And that that is so important and I wouldn't teach it so hard. I wouldn't be so adamant about it if it weren't for verses 26 and 27 of Galatians chapter 3. You're all the sons of God by faith. You're all the sons of God. How? By faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because those of you who were baptized into Christ or those of you who, who engaged in this faithful acceptance of Jesus Christ, what? Have put on Christ. Now, does that mean I literally have the some Jesus something on me right now that I can't see? No, but it's not really figurative either. I, something about my baptism and my faith, my faithful baptism, brought me into union with Christ in a dynamic, interlocked union with him. And in that union, I find my sonship in God. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul, had, I mean, he, he is like a, a, a world-class surgeon with the way he can cut and slice this scripture up. And not in a deceptive, manipulative way, but in a wise and discerning way. He can point out things that are just so fruitful in understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament, how they work together. We are children of God. We are children of Abraham and the promise made to him, which was that salvation would come to the world through him, through Christ, his family. And we're recipients of it. Chapter 3 is 
deep but rich. And we'll tackle chapter four next time. So hope to see you then. Thanks.